0: This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all. Um... (coughs) second presentation we're doing today is entitled Faith and Formulas. Faith and Formulas. So before we start, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we get into it. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather and study together. I pray you'd bless our time. May your Holy Spirit be here in our midst. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Faith and Formulas. We're going to be looking at some of the history behind what we believe as a church today, or what I believe the Bible teaches on the different um, beliefs on salvation. Now, in order to do this, we're going to go on a journey to Germany. We'll start in Germany, then make our way to Holland, and we'll finally end up in England. Someone say amen. <laughs> um, so Germany. Does anyone know what this building is here? anyone been there? No. Luther's home. Very good. Um, that's his head there. Um, a metal image of it. So this was the house that Martin Luther was born in. You see that building behind. That was the church that he would have been baptized, or you know we would say dedication today, but back then they were baptized, infant baptism, would have been in that church just behind. So this was Luther's birth home. It's also in this town where he died. So you go to his birth home. It's called... There we go. We have a German speaker here. Thank you, Pastor Flickinger. Um, Martin Luther, that's where he was born, his birth house. If you go into his house, you can see different um, uh, parts of his simple house that he lived in. That would have been his bedroom, they reckon, but not his bed. It's just kind of a bed reconstructed as what beds on that period would look like. And that would have been his dining table um, or something similar to that. And that's the church where he would have been um, baptized as a baby. Luther was baptized into the Catholic Church. Infant baptism is what they practiced back then. And as he grew up, (coughs) he grew up in a very poor house. You may have read the stories or heard the stories how when he was traveling to school, he would sometimes have to sing from door to door to raise a little bit of money so he could buy his lunch at school or before he would get there. Today, we live quite privileged lives. His life was quite poor, and it was not that easy. Then, as Luther got older, he decided he wanted to become a monk. And so he went to a town which was about an hour from where he was born, the town called Erfurt. And in this town, he went to a monastery. Today, you can go to that monastery. You can actually spend the night there. You can rent a room and spend the night in that monastery. Uh, I haven't had the chance do that. We were only there for a few hours. But If you go to this monastery, they've got the rooms there that are kind of, some of them are I guess what you'd call a hotel now. But also, uh, they believe his bedroom was this one up here. They're not 100% sure though. Also while he was here in this monastery, he was a very devout monk. He once said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He was a very, very devout monk. Then, one day, He was in this room here. It's quite profound, I think, to go there. And it was while he was in this room that he looked over at the wall and saw on the wall a chain. Attached to the chain was a book. The book was the Bible. And as Luther writes, he says, I had heard about the Bible, but I had never seen one. Now that's just like, I can't get that. That's like going to study to be a minister at Andrews Seminary, Univers- University Seminary, to be a pastor in the Adventist Church, and you get to the, you know, the, the theological training center to be a pastor, and you're like, oh, I've never seen a Bible. Oh, I've heard about one. So he sees a Bible for his first time in this room. It's chained, literally chained to the wall. With like a big hard cover and a chain attached to the wall and so he goes and starts to read this bible the bible was in latin but even reading in latin and reading this bible chains to the wall he would read he read it several times you know would read through it and as he read the bible you know the bible says in psalms 119 verse 130 it says the entrance of your words gives light it gives understanding to the simple And so as Martin Luther read this, even though it was in Latin, it started to illuminate his mind, and he started to see different things. As he read the Bible, though, it wasn't an easy course. It wasn't just like he found the Bible, read the Bible, and, oh, he got saved. No, no. As he read this Bible, he kind of, he struggled with a view of who God was. Was God a loving God? Was God a mean God? Was God kind? Was God severe? Is God love? He burns in hell? There's purgatory. He had all these thoughts running through his mind. And he struggled. And there was someone that he met that really helped him out. And if you've read Luther's life before, you know anything about him. There was a man, (coughs) excuse me, called Dr. Staupitz. Dr. Staupitz really helped Luther out. Kind of like one of those teachers that is a student on their way, corrects the trajectory of their life, and sets them right. And Staupitz really helped Luther out with a correct or, I mean, not like a fully correct, but a, a more biblical view as to what happens with a man and God in salvation. And he helped Luther out on this journey and really corrected him to help to see God as being a loving God and so on. But Luther's journey wasn't ended yet. It wasn't even complete yet. He would go to this town here. Does anyone recognize what this town is? Some do. This is the town called Wittenberg, or I'm not sure if you're supposed to pronounce it with a V as Wittenberg. You are Wittenberg. Um, And this is the church, that door right there, where Luther nailed his 95 theses in 1517 on October the 31st. Had the privilege, we were filming there in In January of this year and so most of the videos and pictures you'll see will be with green trees and and whatever but we were there when it snowed and so you take what you get and uh, it just gives a different feel. But anyway that's Wittenberg or Wittenberg and Luther was a university professor there. Now while he was a university professor in Wittenberg there was a dispute that arose between some of the theologians and churches in the area. So what do you do when there's a dispute? And you're all Catholic who settles the dispute where'd you go you go to the higher-ups right so uh, there was a dispute so eventually they delegated that Luther would go to Rome to have this dispute heard by the higher authorities there in Rome and then he would bring back the answer as to what would be the case in this dispute So Luther went to Rome, and this is obviously, he wouldn't have seen this image in Rome because this was built after him, but it's what we associate with Rome today. Luther went to Rome, and as he got to Rome, he says, as I saw the city of Rome, I lay prostrate on the ground, and I said, oh, holy Rome, I salute you. For him, it was the apex of his life, you know, this is Rome, he's a Catholic, he's a monk, He's finally there in Rome and seeing the, you know, the the holy city as it were. And, but he says, as he walked up and down the streets of Rome, he says, you could not imagine the sin and the conversations and all the things he saw. It was a completely different picture to what he had imagined it to be. You know, sometimes you dream about going to a certain place and when you finally get there, you realize it's not all, all that it was cracked up to be. While he was at Rome, he went to this place here. I was at this place, it's called Pilate Staircase. That's kind of the, I'm not sure if it's the official name or the, or, the, or the nickname for it. But the Catholics believe that this staircase was the literal staircase that Jesus ascended on the night, or the nights before he was crucified when he met Pilate. Hence, it's called Pilate's Staircase. They believe that miraculously one night, an angel picked up this staircase in Jerusalem and transported it and dropped it in Rome. Now... They believe that, and you know we believe in miracles too, so I guess they just add that to one of their miracles. But because they believe that, this is where Jesus walked up, the Catholic pilgrims come, and you can see them. They're lining up there. There's like a traffic jam. And they get to the stairs, and then they kneel on the first step, the second step, the third step, and they say a prayer all the way up. And it's not like our short little popcorn prayers and sentence prayers that we sometimes pray. They're like on each step for like two, three, four, five minutes, and they're making their way slowly up, saying their prayers. Martin Luther was no different. He got to the staircase. It's probably one of the most authentic places in the Reformation you can go to because you know it was on that staircase, somewhere on one of these steps, that as Luther was going up on his knees as a devout Catholic priest and monk, that somewhere, I don't know, maybe it was halfway up, as he was kneeling down praying, he heard the words in his mind, the just shall live by faith. Romans chapter 1 And verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He heard these words in his mind. It wasn't like some, you know, some angel saying them in the sky. He just kind of impression in his mind, Holy Spirit speaking to him, the just shall live by faith. He never finished his journey up the steps. He got up from his knees and walked away. Now that was, you know, when you think about Martin Luther's life, there are probably like five or six, what you would say, turning points in his life. This was one of them. It really made an impression on his life he didn't all of a sudden become a, a you know a changed man at that point but it made a huge impression on his life the just shall live by faith so first of all he had stout pits that helped him out seeing God as more loving then you've got this situation where he sees the just live by faith now why was that so big let me share with you <coughs> a little bit of what the Catholic Church believed Rome believed that there was two causes of justification justification is a fancy word for saying you are made what? Just. How a guilty person becomes a righteous person, how someone wrong becomes right, justification. So, there was two, 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 two stages. Number 1, you had to get baptized. And what at what point did the Catholics get baptized? They got baptized as babies, not how we baptize not how we baptize today. So that would be taken care of at birth. Then you had the sacrament of penance. The sacrament of penance. Now this is how the grace of, you, you would get the sacrament of justification through, the sac, through penance. Now, what was penance? There was a thing at the time with Martin Luther's day called indulgences. Indulgences were linked to justification by their connection to penance. Penance is one of the things of justification. Penance was a second plant of justification for those who had made a shipwreck of their, that should say soul, sorry, of their soul. Penance, so you have baptism... You're baptized as a baby. Then let's say you mess up your life. And you mess up your life, as most people do. Well, then what do you have to do? You have to do penance. Penance then has three parts to it. Contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Three parts to penance. Indulgence was the satisfaction part. Now you say, well, what were indulgences? Well, indulgences were essentially paying money to the church to cleanse your soul, it was a racket basically, it was a a scam, economic problems and a financial crisis that affected both the Vatican and one of the princes in Germany prompted in Luther's day the indulgence corruption, so the Catholic Church believed in indulgences, in fact Luther actually still believed in indulgences, he just didn't believe in the, the abuse of indulgences, he said the, 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 the theology of, of um, indulgences was being abused. What was it mean? Well, it was decided that the indulgence would, should be pro- promulgated on behalf of St. Peter's. So what did they have a the problem? There's a financial crisis in the Vatican, so they said, okay, let's use indulgences. We'll sell the indulgence. What does that mean? You come to see the priest, and the priest says, what have you done? Well, I've done this, 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 and this. Okay, modern day term, 1,000 pounds, okay? Here's a 1,000 pounds to the church. Now, by by you paying a 1,000 pounds to the priest, the priest gives you a slip of paper back, and that slip of paper now, you're righteous. You've bought your way to heaven. It's kind of like the fast ticket. You ever been to Disney or something like that? You buy your standard ticket, then you can get the fast-track ticket that gets you to the front of the line. It's kind of like that thing, the fast-track ticket to heaven, indulgences. Here you are, paid more money, get to heaven quicker. And Luther was like, this is an abuse. How can people just be paying money and forgiving them of sins in the past. Not just sins in the past, but it was also the future. So this indulgence crisis in Luther's day, the money was going to go to St. Peter's. You go to St. Peter's today, you stand in St. Peter's Basilica, huge, marble, gold, and stunning building paid for (coughs) by people's sins, indulgences. So... Saxony, which was the area that Luther was, had connected almost 18,000 relics, ranging from a twig from Moses' burning bush to a tear that Jesus shed when he wept over Jerusalem. Money from this traffic in relics provided the endowment for the University of Wittenberg. Pilgrims came from miles around, for by making the proper prayers and offerings, one could earn indulgences, which would cancel out almost two million years in purgatory. But You see how this is all connected? because it was connected to the endowment of the university. So, Martin Luther attacking indulgences, he's attacking the very institution that pays him. So, he's kind of biting the hand that feeds him. You should know, this is what, this quote here is what, um, what's the guy's name? Tetzel, this is what Tetzel said. <coughs> You should know whoever has confessed in his contrite and put arms in the box as his confessor counsels him will have all of his sins forgiven. So why are you standing about idly? Imagine the preacher standing up in church and says, why are you standing about? Run all of you for the salvation of your souls. Do you not hear the voices of your dead parents and other people screaming and saying, have pity on me, have pity on me. We are suffering severe punishment on pain from which you could rescue us. Imagine the preacher saying that at GYC. You know, he's like, you can hear your dead parents screaming in purgatory, come, give me your money. The famous quote that um, Tetzel said is this one, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That's one of the boxes, you know, drop the money, ding, okay, they're in heaven. So the, the, the controversy happened where people went to see Tetzel, and they bought their indulgences from Tetzel. Then they came to see Luther as the local, one of the local priests and whatever, and they would produce their bill from the, the indulgence. Hey, look, we just bought this. And Luther's like, mm, I'm not accepting that. Whoa, what do you mean you're not accepting that? That cost me good money. Luther's like, no, no, I'm not accepting that. So the controversy starts between Luther and Tetzel. And then, this is the door Here, Um, this is not the actual door. The door would have been wooden. Today, the door is metal, and they've engraved the 95 theses on the door. But in Luther's day, it would have been a wooden door. On October the 31st, which was All Saints Day, Luther had written 95 statements, called today the 95 theses. He wrote them out, and he took them to the door and nailed them to the door. Now, I don't believe he ever intended it would happen to be what it did, but he wrote that, posted it there. Then it just kind of blew up and went out of control. They were translated into German, as they were translated into German, they were printed on the printing presses, and they went all over Europe. And people were like, wow, here you've got a teacher challenging a foundational doctrinal belief of the Catholic Church. So Luther's progression in his salv- salvific belief is changed. Even though he nailed the 95 theses to this church here, it's actually this one down the road where he preached, where he preached regularly. And he preached a famous sermon in this church called The Just Shall Live By Faith. Based on the text in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, he preached the sermon here in this church. Now, after Luther published his 95 Theses, the Roman Catholic Church said, we're not happy with you. And they wrote a papal bull called Exurge Domine and signed it on June the 15th, 1520. And it declared that Luther was a wild boar. If you don't know what a boar is, it's a pig. He's a wild pig loose in the vineyard of Christ. They condemned Luther as a heretic and demanded that he retract his heresies within 60 days or be excommunicated. They exhorted all Christians to reject his heresies and to burn his writings. And on the 10th of December, 1520, the grace period was up. See, Luther was prone to a little bit of drama himself. You know? the end of the grace period, Luther's like, okay. He takes the papal bull and publicly burns it in a large bonfire in front of people. So Luther, you know, he was a little bit of a, had a little bit of drama in him too. A year later, he was summoned to the Diet of Worms, or worms as as we say in English. He was summoned here to the Diet of Worms in this town of Germany. This is the Reformation monument there. Luther's there in the middle and there's other reformers around. And it was there at this Diet of Worms where he was after who would retract his beliefs or stand by them. He said (coughs) that he wouldn't retract them, and he would stand by them. And after the Diet of Worms, he's condemned, he'd previously been excommunicated, he was condemned again. Luther was on a trajectory that was away from Rome. Now, on his way home from the Diet of Worms, he was, and I say this, captured. Why do I say he was captured? He was literally captured, but it wasn't a capture. It was It was a rescue. So he was on his way home, but some of his friends hadn't told him they had planned to capture him. Why? To hide him from getting captured by someone else. So it's kind of like a, you know, exciting, you know. <laughs> Imagine being like around in those days like, "Hey guys, look and <laughs> Imagine us plotting to capture the GC president. So we stop him getting captured by someone else. And then he was taken to this this castle. And in this castle he stayed in a room. But you know it's a blessing. Ellen White writes that it was a blessing for him in two ways. Number one, it removed him from the heat of the battle. And then she says number two, it removed him from the constant praise and adulation he had been getting. So it did two things. It removed him from the controversy from those against him, and it removed him from the constant praise he was getting from those that liked him. And it was a blessing. So he was there in this castle, but it was while he was here in this castle that he was able to work on, um, I think it was his translation of the German Bible that he worked on while he was there in the Wartburg Castle. This was his room. He grew a beard. um, (coughs) Excuse me. He grew a beard while he was there to disguise himself, and it was here in this room, I believe that table is original, actually, and that that whale bone there, it's like a a bone from a whale, is original, too. It was there in the room when he was there. Anyway, that's a pointless piece of information. But um, it was here where he translated um, the Bible. Now, faith and formulas. The Reformers, Luther was the first one, they spoke about this thing called justification by what? Faith alone. Faith what? Alone. It was the idea that faith, rather than the sacraments, would be the instrument by which we're linked to Christ and receive the grace of justification. It's by faith alone. You don't have to go to the confessional booth, you don't have to pay indulgences, you don't have to do all these other things, but it's by faith alone. Martin Luther and the Reformers insisted that the righteousness by which we're justified is extra extranos, meaning it's a righteousness outside of us. It's not something we can do, it's not something we generate, but it's external to us. Now, as Adventists today, do we believe this, yes or no? Yes, we do. We don't believe that we can earn or work our way. We believe that righteousness is, in a sense, outside of us. For Rome, the righteousness by Christ is not imputed, but infused into the believer. When the believer cooperates with the infused righteousness, the believer then possesses. Basically, what they're saying is when the believer cooperates with the sacraments, with penance and and confession, then the believer receives justification. We would say, no, you don't have to do those things to get salvation, you get it by faith in God, amen? Now, as Adventists, though, we've kind of sometimes created almost Adventist versions of Catholic theology, where we believe if we do certain things that we believe as a good Adventist we should do, we can get a head start in salvation. And we have to really think about what our theological framework is to see if we're actually Catholic or biblical. Those who, through sin, this is what the Catholic, the, Con, the the Council of Trent said. Council of Trent was a Catholic council which was instituted after Luther to rectify the mistakes of the Reformation. They were trying to, you know, reverse the Reformation. Those who, through sin, have forfeited the grace of justification can again be justified when, moved by God, they exert themselves to obtain through the sacrament of penance. The recovery by the merits of Christ of the grace of the lost, for this manner of justification is restoration for those fallen, by which the Holy Father has aptly called the second plank after the shipwreck of grace lost. Summarizing that to say, they're emphasizing the belief in penance as part of justification. Okay? Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith, it conferred to the righteousness of God, who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. After this Catholic doctrine of justification, which whosoever does not faithfully and firmly accept cannot be justified, it seemed good to the Holy Council to add these canons, that all may know not only what they must hear and follow, but what they must avoid and shun. The acts of the penitent himself, any contrition, confession, and satisfaction... Constitute the manner of this sacrament so we say in order to be justified you've got to be baptized as a child Then you've got to do contrition Confession and satisfaction to then be justified As an Adventist at what point are you justified we believe? Like what do you have to do first to be declared just in the eyes of God. Like, what needs to come first? We'll get to it. Inasmuch as by God's... Okay, next slide. Now, some people say that the Bible talks about the fruits of repentance. What? How do the fruits of repentance differ from the Catholic belief of satisfaction, contrition, confession? You know the Bible says produce fruits meet for repentance? How does that differ from the Catholic saying part of your justification is to be contrite, confess, and satisfy God? We say fruits meet for repentance. Let me give you an illustration. Pastor Eric Flickinger, a good friend of mine, he's got a nice It Is Written shirt on there. And let's say I'm looking at his It Is Written shirt, hmm. Quite like Pastor Eric's it, it Is Written shirt. So I kind of like, I don't know, he's at the booth and he takes it off and puts another shirt on. And I just say, you know what, I'm just going to take his It Is Written shirt. So I take Pastor Eric's It Is Written shirt, I take it to my room because I want a Knit Written shirt. Because everyone wants a Knit Is Written shirt. Amen. <sighs> then tonight I'm feeling really guilty. Feeling really guilty because I stole his It Is Written shirt. So tonight, I get on my knees and I say to God, Lord, forgive me for stealing Pastor Eric's it it is written shirt. Question, am I forgiven by God, yes or no? At what point am I forgiven? But do I have to return the shirt? So am I forgiven before I return the shirt or after I return the shirt? I'm forgiven before I return the shirt. Amen? Because the Protestant belief doesn't believe I... It's kind of, you have to phrase it exactly right. If I'm truly repentant, will I return the shirt? Yes. But I'm forgiven before I return the shirt. The Catholic belief is different. I'm only forgiven after I return the shirt. You see, repentance without contrition is not genuine repentance. However, subtle point, true repentance brings forgiveness before restitution is made. There's a lot of us that would say, I'm not going to, I won't be forgiven until I give it back. God forgives me before I give it back. But giving it back is part of actually being fully sorry. It's a very fine difference, but it's a big difference nonetheless. Restitution satisfies the command of God to pay our human debts, but it's not the ground of justification. This may sound like a small point, but it's not. It's a huge point. And it was a huge point as part of the Protestant Reformation. The Catholics were like, no, you've got to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Then you're forgiven and just. The Protestants said, no, we're justified by faith. What does it say in Ephesians For by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith, and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then the next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ unto or for good works. The Council of Trent held that works before justifying grace cannot merit grace but after after justifying grace can merit justification. The Protestant Reformation challenged this whole legalistic scheme by contending that no Christian can merit God's favor. For Rome, grace makes human merit possible. For the reformers, grace makes human merit impossible. Huge difference, and it's not a play on words. What did Luther say? These arguments of the scholastics about the merit of congruence and worthiness are nothing but vain figments and dreamy speculations of idle folk about worthless stuff. Yet they form the foundation of the papacy, and on them it rested this very day. For this is what every monk imagines. He's telling you, what did I imagine? By observing the sacred rules of my order, I can earn the grace of congruence, but by the works I do after I have received this grace, I can accumulate a merit so great that it will not only be enough to bring me eternal life, but I can start giving some of this extra grace I've got to other people as well. There is no such thing as merit, but all are justified, are justified for nothing, and this is credited to no one but the grace of God. For Christ alone is proper to help and save others with the merits and works. The works of others are of benefit to no one, not to themselves either, for the statement stands, the just shall live by faith. Luther said, look, we cannot work to earn our salvation, neither can we give our grace to other people as they kind of believed the priest did. So the Roman Catholic view was that you have faith plus works leading to justification. The Reformation view was that your faith led you to be justified, (coughs) excuse me, and then works followed. So the Reformation view was that your works were a fruit the Catholic view was that your works were a precondition. Don't be a Catholic Adventist today. Amen? For Rome, justification rests on sanctification. For the Reformer, sanctification flows out by necessary connection, justification. Now, just a little kind of modern point here. You know, today, some people say that the Catholic Church has the divide with the Lutheran Church, and they signed a joint declaration in 1999 to say, the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans, we all love each other. And they've signed a new one since 1999. However, when you look at the small print, anytime you see a contract, look at the small print. When you look at the small print, the small print of the 1999 joint declaration on justification said, we still uphold the Council of Trent's view on justification. So in all the frivolous stuff, they said... Actually, our view of justification is still what we said in 1545. Hasn't changed. You know what Ellen White says? It's the boast of Rome that she never what? She never changes. Asked whether there's anything in the official common statement to the Council of Trent. Um, Cardinal Cassidy said, absolutely not. Otherwise, how could we do it? We cannot do something contrary to an ecumenical council. There is nothing there that the Council of Trent condemns. Essentially, what I'm saying is they haven't changed their view. Um, so, those who forget the history are in danger of repeating it. Now, let me share with you another person called John Calvin. John Calvin came along after Luther, he was in many ways a broader thinker than Luther. He's part of the second generation of reformers. He came after Luther. He was an important systemizer of Protestantism. What do I mean by that? He looked at a much broader list of topics than Luther did. He wrote the Institutes, what they were they were called, which covered the law, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Sacrament, the false sacraments of Rome, and Christian freedom. Initially it was six chapters, but it grew over time to be 80 chapters on a huge spectrum of topics. Now, Calvin was a theological genius. Calvin said that everything has to be proven by the Bible. And yet Calvin, with his view on justification or sanctification, is not what we would say we believe as Adventists today. But he was a great reformer. Amen? And so when we look at these reformers, we have to kind of be able to pick pick out the good and strip away the bad. Because the Lord used them all in a different part of the journey, but Calvin kind of got the wrong emphasis in some areas. If you go to... um. Geneva today, this is a pretty impressive wall you can go to. It's called the Reformation Wall. It's about, I don't know, about 100 meters long or so. And John Calvin's one of the figures there in the middle. Uh, John Knox is this one. You've got Farrell and Beze, who was um, Calvin's successor there in, in Geneva. Now, Calvin had a student called John Knox. John Knox spent close to five years in Geneva. He led the Scottish Reformation And he founded the Church of Scotland, or what today would be known as the Presbyterian Church. You have Presbyterian churches all over the world. They're bigger in some countries than others. Presbyterian Church goes back to John Knox. John Knox was a student of John Calvin. And he pastored the St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. There's a St. Giles Cathedral. It's a pretty impressive building inside and out. Now, (coughs) this man, does anyone recognize who this is? He's not so well known. His name is called Jacob Arminius. Okay, who is Jacob Arminius? Well, he was a Dutch guy. He was a Dutch pastor. He was initially a Calvinist. He studied under Calvin's successor, Theodore. I should say Beze, sorry. I'm, uh, Apple autocorrect. He returned to Holland. He was asked to refute the opinions of Dirk Kornhurt who was a theologian who rejected Calvinism. So he's sent back to Holland, and he said, okay, your first job is to study and refute this guy. He studies to refute this guy, and as he's studying to refute this guy, he realizes that that guy was right. So, he clashed with a fellow faculty mentor called Comaris, and Jacob Arminius gave his name to Arminianism, a doctrine that many have considered the antithesis of Calvinism. Now, what are all these isms? They weren't debating where the predestination takes place because the Bible says there's predestination, amen? They were debating what the basis of predestination is. Now, what are the differences? This is why I say, as an Adventist, we are not Calvin. Calvin. Calvinism is based on these five key things, the five key things of Calvinism. Unconditional election. That's another word for kind of what we call today predestination. Limited atonement, what does that mean? God's atonement is limited to a certain amount of people. Total depravity, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Calvinism, one of the key pillars of Calvinism, if you summarize all this up, you get the doctrine that they talk about and is commonly understood as predestination. This man's predestined to be saved, and this lady's predestined to be lost. Now, Jacob Arminius came along, and he said, no, election is not unconditional, it's conditional. What does election mean? You know, kind of choosing. It's conditional. Conditional. There is not a limited atonement from heaven, but there is an unlimited atonement. Meaning God's grace, you hear the sermons in church, God's grace is for how many people? It's for all. God's grace is for all. It's unlimited. As opposed to total depravity, they believe in the free will or the human ability to choose. Instead of irresistible grace, they actually believe that grace can be resisted. And instead of the perseverance of the saints, you can actually fall away from grace. Now, these two columns here, which one would you say Adventism fits under more? The left or the right? We're on the right side, right? We believe in the unlimited atonement of God. Free will. This kind of is, do we believe in irresistible grace or resistible grace? It's resistible. As good as the grace of God is, you can resist it, amen? You shouldn't resist it, but you can. So we fall more under the Arminianism line, we do fall under here, as opposed to this one. Now, different denominations are fit under these, so the Calvinism is often called, when you see Reformed churches, that's a Calvinist church, Okay? Presbyterian Calvinism, Reformed Baptist Calvinism, United Church of Christ Calvinist, and the Protestant Reformed Churches of America, they're also Calvinism. Arminianism, Arminianism, United Methodist, Wesleyan, American Free Will Baptists, here, Church of the Nazarene, Adventism would come come under here as well. That's kind of the, the, um, the branch that we come from. So this is Methodist. Now, Methodism, I'll just share a a little bit more on Methodism. Methodism was started by a man named John Wesley. If you go to London, and you should all go to London once in your life, at least to visit some of the Reformation sites, you can go to this place here. This is John Wesley's house. You just see a clip of it here. And this is John Wesley's church and a statue of him. Now, it's an amazing place. It's free to visit. There's a museum of Methodism there in the basement. It's free to visit. You don't have to pay anything. That's the best part. There on this statue, he's got the words, the world is my parish. Now, it wasn't arrogant words. Why did he say the world is my parish? It's kind of like the belief we have today that wherever you are, you should be a witness for God. He said, the world is my parish. Wherever I am in the world, I should be witnessing and be a minister for Christ there. I can't be on holiday here and be a minister here. I'm a minister everywhere I go. So he said, the world is my parish. Now, this is the home where John Wesley was born in. It's in the town of Epworth, no, the village of Epworth. It was the home of the Wesleys. John Wesley was a PK, what we call today a pastor's kid. He wasn't, um, his dad, though, wasn't a liked pastor. In this village of Epworth, one of his church members, allegedly, we believe it was one of his church members who didn't like him, set fire to his house, as you do, and set fire to uh, John Wesley's house he was born in. He was sleeping in the upstairs room. His parents managed to get everyone out the house. They forgot about him or couldn't get to him, so they had to kind of build a human ladder, and they pulled him out the window at the age of five. His mother said about John Wesley, she would often refer to him as a brand plucked from the fire. I believe this had a profound influence on John Wesley's mind, and he believed that he was kind of on this world for something more um, important than just to live as everyone else was living. John Wesley um, went to school, and, and this is his house. You can see different things there about his house. Um, that's a preacher rota. John Wesley went to school in the town called Oxford. Oxford University. He went to Christ Church College. Um, <coughs> excuse me. In his house, this is his bedroom. You can go to his bedroom. It's not his original bed. They don't believe... Um, his bed would have been there. There's his writing desk that is original. It's original writing desk that he wrote. He was a great inventor. There's a, kind of some electrical machine there that he invented. Um, this is the chair that he kind of invented. It's an old cockfighting chair. You see there. You would sit. You can sit both ways. You can sit with your legs there, facing that way, or you can turn and just have, have it as a normal chair. But he put this little thing here as well, so he could sit there put his arms on each side, and then he could write there. So it was a desk, and also it was a chair. He was quite an ingenious man. He was only a short man. he was five foot three. He spent some time here in America. actually, some of you may know he came over here, but he wasn't very successful in his ministry here in America. George Whitfield, one of his companions or compadres, was much more successful, spent a lot of time in America. John Wesley, though, didn't spend very long, and went back to England after not too long. In his house, though, you can see this room. This is two pictures of the same. In his house, there's a bedroom that you can go through. I'm sorry, through his bedroom, and there's a room here. It's his prayer room. He built a room on the end of his house just to pray in. Now, to me, that's profound. I don't know about you, if you own a house or your parents own a house, maybe. But today, people build extensions on their house to have a prettier house to have a swimming pool in the garden, to have a three-car garage instead of a two-car garage, to renovate the kitchen because the old kitchen's just terrible and we need a new kitchen, or whatever. We spend money on all types of things today. John Wesley spent money on an extension on his house just so he could have like a three-meter by two-meter room dedicated to be in his prayer room. Which I believe is a lesson for us today. You can see it there on the back of the house. It's kind of an ugly protrusion. But many people say this is the powerhouse of Methodism. He is buried there behind the building. But Methodism goes back to this university here at Oxford. It goes back here. Here at this university, this is Christchurch College. Um, it's an amazing building. But you know what people visit it today for? This is like where John Wycliffe studied. John Wesley studied here. Charles Wesley studied here. Profound name studied here. Tourists go to Oxford today and visit Christchurch College because it's where they filmed Harry Potter. And so goes modern society. Anyway, there's a stairwell there where they filmed something in Harry Potter. But John John Wesley went here. While he was a student here in these halls at Christchurch College, very impressive architecture, beautiful building, while he was a student here at... um, church college they set up a campus bible study if any of you are students here on a university campus whether it's an adventist campus or a non-adventist campus i would encourage you to get involved while you're at whether it's not university maybe it's high school get involved in a bible study while you're on campus this bible study was started not actually by john wesley it was started by charles wesley charles wesley started it because he came from a very spiritual home and many adventists can relate to that he came from a very spiritual home then he went to oxford university and while he was studying at oxford university he lost his way for some time spiritually speaking he's like oh i'm just not really spiritually active so what he did he said i need some friends that agree with me and we can be accountability partners let's start a bible study group together so they started a Bible study group. Now, they never picked a name for themselves. But some of the names that they were given by other people was the Holy Club. That's the most common one, the Holy Club. They never picked that for themselves. That would be quite an uh, that'd be quite a, uh, arrogant name to call yourself. Hey, what's your name? With the Holy Club. Now, they never called themselves the Holy Club. Other people gave that to them. Uh, some people call them the Bible moths, super whatever that is, men, sacramentarians because they took communion every week. Um, Whereas other people didn't believe you had to do it every week. And the Methodists. The one that stuck while they were at school was called the Holy Club. And then later on, later on, they would be called the Methodists. Initially, it's a campus ministry. What did they do to be in this this group? Like, it's almost like, what did you have to do to sign up? Well, they fasted every Wednesday and Friday until 3 p.m. These are good things to do. maybe. Took communion once a week. As Adventists, we do it once a quarter, but there's nothing in the Bible or Ellen White that says we do it once a quarter. They took it once a week. They studied the Bible every night. They visited the sick and imprisoned, and they would try and live a holy life. This is what they would do in this campus ministry. Every night, they would study the Bible together. Now, they were called the Holy Club, then later on they, they got called by other people, the Methodists. They were called the Methodists because they lived a very methodical life. They methodically studied the Bible, and they methodically did good things. People could say, well, it wasn't spontaneous. They would go visit the prison on this day. They would go visit the poorhouse on this day. They would go visit whatever on this day. It was very methodical the way they did it both in their practice and in their study. But notice some of the questions that they asked the society members. There were about 20 questions that they would ask. And here are some of the questions. Am I consciously, these are like John Wesley's questions, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Now, as we read through these questions, I believe these questions in some ways are very profound and are questions that we should ask of our spiritual life today. John Wesley, in his campus ministry, they would ask their members, it was like the charter. Hey, guys, check it out, check, you know, where are we on the scale? You see, Wesley came from the, 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 the belief, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, of Arminianism. Arminianism believes in free will. Arminianism believes in resistible grace. Arminianism believes that you have to accept Christ yourself, and you don't just get it by a birthright. And so he says, you have to constantly be examining your soul where you stand with God. Now, as Adventists, we believe that too. You know, Paul, a a text of Paul that we often quote in our churches is, I die what? Daily, meaning our spiritual life has to be renewed every day. Just because you went forward for an appeal at GYC this morning doesn't mean that's good for tomorrow. Just because you got baptized three years ago doesn't mean that's good for next year. Like, it's something that has to happen on a daily basis, a constant renewing. And so these were questions that they would ask. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression of a better life? Number two, am I honest in all my and words, or do I exaggerate? Some of us are prone to exaggeration, amen? I, work, I used to work as an evangelist, and sometimes as evangelists, we'd always get accused of exaggerating <laughs> Exaggerating things. Some Adventists always exaggerate. Oh, there was 100 people. At no, there wasn't. There was like 15. But there were so many. Am mm. i exaggerating. Do I confidentially pass on to another what was told to me in confidence? I can tell you something. Our schools, our universities, our churches would be much more peaceful and righteous places if we followed number three. There's so many church issues and problems and school issues and problems and college issues and problems, but down to number three. And sometimes we do it in a righteous way. Hey, it's like prayer meeting and people, uh, I can't say anything, but we need to pray for so-and-so. But what is it No, I can't say? Well, you just created this huge impression of doubt and suspicion, and then you now take the moral high ground that you can't say anything. Now, that one's not so bad. The one that I really gets me is when people come to you and say, hey, I, I heard. And then they tell you something about yourself. This one really irks me. And then you say, well, who told you this about me? And they say, oh, I can't tell you. I'm like, you're going to take the moral high ground now to protect someone else while you are gossiping yourself. It's like a whole contradiction of ethics. Anyway. Do I confidently pass on to another what has been told to me in confidence? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? These would be good questions we ask ourselves. Like, wake up in the morning, what's most important? What we wear, what my face looks like, what my hair looks like. Or my soul with God? Am I self-conscious, self pitying or self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Do I give it time to speak to me every day? You know, we can get so much in the zone of Adventism sometimes that we don't actually actually spend time with the Bible. We just spend time around the Bible. Like... Let's not be here at GYC, be around spiritual people, be around spiritual themes, be around the Bible spoken, and don't actually spend time with the Bible ourselves personally. It's a shame when the only time we may read a scripture is when we turn to the scripture reading on Sabbath morning. If we do turn. Ask ourselves the question. Number nine. Am I enjoying prayer? Or is it a routine? Now, these are like profound questions. This was like their standard that they would ask. I think if we would ask ourselves this question every Sabbath morning, it would be good. When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? When did I last speak to someone else? You know, speaking about our faith, we sometimes have to get ourselves out of our comfort zone. Amen? You know, recently, we just had Christmas. Whether you believe in Christmas or don't believe in Christmas, we had Christmas The world had it. And my wife said this year that she wanted to, like, bake some cookies and give them to our neighbors. And, like, it was like, I don't know, no big deal, baking cookies and giving them to your neighbors. But I'm like, I'm in England. We don't do that in England. Maybe in America they do. I don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But, like, and all of a sudden, I started to feel really uncomfortable about Knocking on someone's door and saying, Merry Christmas, here's some cookies. We're your neighbours. Yeah. And it was kind of a shame. And then I started to think, how can I go and preach somewhere to people I've never met? And I I can't knock on the house across the road and say, Merry Christmas. If you want to pop over time. And I think we have to ask ourselves those questions. Am I speaking to someone about my faith? Am I building bridges with other people? Do I pray? Here's number 11. That's an important one. Do I pray about the money I spend? John Wesley was a big believer in frugal living. Most of John Wesley's ministry was in the working class communities in England. If you know England, England's very divided by class. You've got working class, middle class, and upper class, and never the twain shall meet or mix or move between. And he would minister mainly to the working classes. And many people believe Many people believe by teaching how to frugally live their lives, how to not waste their money on drink and other types of things, and how to live these rules in their life. Many people believe that England was spared a revolution in the 1700s that France had. We all talk about the French Revolution. England had the same social societal conditions as France had, and yet while France had the revolution, England had a second reformation. It's profound. And it was John Wesley's work with the working class communities, the very people who would have been the backbone of a revolution for the injustices of society, that England, I believe, was spared the revolution that would have come. And instead of having a revolution, they had a revival. And the revival was based on these questions that Methodism was built on, that I believe saved England a bloody revolution that... Scarred France then and still scars it today. Do I get to bed on time and get up on time? Amen. That's a good one. Do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist on doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Question number 16. Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? These are good questions for us to ask ourselves about our current spiritual state as to where we stand. How do I spend my spare time? That's a key question to ask. How do we spend our spare time today? And how we spend our spare time today in 2017 is different to how we spent our spare time in 2007, which was different to how we spent it in 1997, and is different to 1987. There's whole different challenges that society has today that just suck up our time that people didn't even have five or ten years ago? How do we spend our spare time? What are we doing in our spare time? What is our mind thinking on? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I am not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despise the publican? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward, or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? You know, in church, we have communion once a quarter. And communion is kind of put in there in the program of the church to deal with this one. Is there someone in church you don't like? Well, communion's there. You know why? So you don't wash the feet of your friend. You go wash the feet of the person you really don't like. Because then you actually build a bridge. And it's, But unfortunately, today in communion, that's the Sabbath that many people are like, oh, okay, I'm sick this Sabbath. Because we want to avoid that. And instead of going through the motion, we just kind of sometimes stay away. But is there someone I don't like, I dislike, I criticize, I hold a resentment toward? Maybe there's someone here at GYC, maybe someone in your church group that you've come with that you just don't like. You don't want to sit next to them on the minibus. You don't want to sit next to them at mealtime. Like, churches are built on people that don't like each other. Not built on them, they're made of people. You look at the older generation, there's all these fights that go on between the older generation. Sister so-and-so hates sister so-and-so. And it goes back to something that happened in 1972, and they just don't like each other. Yes, exactly. Now, as the younger generation, we often just repeat that same thing. And the church just repeats these problems generation after generation. These are questions we should ask as a litmus test as to where our faith is. Do I grumble or complain constantly? Is Christ real to me? You know, because they lived like this, that people made rhymes about these guys. And I think the rhymes are incorrect, but you know, they were like, by rule they do eat, by rule they drink, by rule do all things but think. And this was people mocking them. I don't think if you ask the questions, am I political? Being loving. How do I spend their time? I don't believe that is not thinking. I believe that's thinking about your spiritual life. You know? John Wesley... On this statue here. By grace are you saved what? Through faith. John Wesley didn't believe in being working our way to heaven. Now, Adventism today is built largely on a Methodist Arminian heritage. Okay? We've kind of adapted it some, it's not exactly the same as them. Because we understand the heavenly sanctuary. We understand Christ's high priestly ministry. We understand the atonement and the judgment. There's other factors we understand that they don't understand. But we come largely from that heritage. Notice these verses. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. I just want to close on this one point here. In Matthew 25, it asks these questions. Then shall the writer say, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungered and thirsty? or fed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see a stranger and took you in, or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And then the king says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Okay? Do the righteous know that they're righteous, yes or no? Do the righteous recognize what they did? They don't even know they did it. He's like, when did we do that? Oh, when you... We should not do good as a litmus test and remember every time we did good. It should be so much a part of who we are that we can't remember. It's just part of who we are. Unfortunately, though, today, we live in a very self-help culture, with a whatever, and we don't like to really help other people, and we only want to help other people if we can know that our help for them is going to make an eternal difference in their life. I think sometimes God calls us to help these type of people just so we know what it felt to be like Jesus. To help people, and they don't thank you. To help people, and your help seems to go to waste. Notice the contrast. Matthew 25, Matthew 7. In Matthew 7 it says, Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. Many will say to me that, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Have we not cast out devils? and your name, done many wonderful works. Then we'll to you I never knew you depart from me you have done iniquity there's a contrast in Matthew 7 you've got a group of people who say lord we did this and this and this and he says i don't know you in Matthew 25 they say lord when did we do this and he said oh oh then then and then in Matthew 25 they don't know what they're doing in Matthew 7 they remember what they did in Matthew 7 this is all public ministry Prophesying, preaching, healing. In Matthew 25, that's all the stuff that no one sees. Today, don't do evangelism because people see it. And it's a contrast. In Matthew 7, it's the people that say, Lord, I did everything, preaching, prophesying, and healing. So I don't know you. In Matthew 25, these people have no idea. And this is all the private stuff. You know, feeding the homeless. It's all the private stuff. What's it showing? True religion doesn't seek award. True salvation and evidence of Christ living in our heart is not seeking fame. It's not seeking the limelight. It's not seeking recognition from earthly people. It's just doing it because that's what Christ has done for us. I pray that we would be Matthew 25 Christians and that we might have a theological understanding as to the inheritance we have from the different people in the Reformation. Our faith that we have today, that God wants us to have, needs to be a faith that we believe we're saved by faith. But after we're saved by faith, we live a life that serves other people and shows evidence of Christ in our heart. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we pause to thank you for how the progression of thought through the years has shaped our heritage and shaped who we are today. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us. And Lord, as we looked at the different questions that the Holy Club or the Methodist Church used to ask just over 200 years ago, questions that still hold supreme relevance for our lives today. Lord, may we meditate on some of these things that stick out in our minds, and we ask, Lord, your Holy Spirit would continue to impress us with where we need um, to lay things aside, with where we need to draw closer to you, Come into our hearts, Lord, we pray, and bless us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This afternoon, our next presentation in this seminar is going to be called um, A Hill to Die On. We're going to look at some of the issues in the past that people lived and died for. And then look at some of the issues today that we may, as a church, have to live and make a stand-on. That's going to be the first presentation. The second one is going to be called The Foundation of All Freedom. And it's, going to be, and it's going to look at the progression of belief through the Reformation and the different people on religious liberty and where we stand as a people today and what our heritage is. So God bless you. Have a good lunch and hope to see you later. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.